Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, hey, church, how we doing? Good, good. I got a good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. We are happy that you are here with us today. Uh, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be camping in John 7 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open those guys, digital or physical or whatever. As long as you got the word open, we're cool. Uh, but we're going to be walking through John 7, 1 to 13 today. Um, before we get there, I want to give a little bit of context and talk a little bit about my own personal journey regarding who, uh, who Jesus is is. Uh, See, growing up, for me, uh, I grew up in church my whole life. I was in church um, from the the time I was a baby. I think I was was two months premature, and then uh, two months after I was two months premature, uh, they took me to my first church service. It was Easter Sunday. Can't miss Easter Sunday. I remember I had a uh, a uh, really ridiculous outfit on that I probably never wore again, um, be, but I had to look great for Easter Sunday. You guys know how it is. Um, I felt that social pressure from my parents to look really good that, that morning that as a two-month-old. Um, but, uh, but when I grew up in church, for me, uh, it, it was really difficult for me to, to recognize who Jesus actually was. Now, it may sound weird. It may actually sound backwards because for a lot of you, you're thinking, hold on, like, I I grew up in church. I bring my kids to church. Um, What do you mean you had a hard time recognizing who Jesus was? Well, for me, uh, because I was constantly surrounded by people who believed in Jesus and that Jesus was the correct answer to every question asked in Sunday school, um, that I didn't actually understand who he was until I had a little bit of a crisis of faith when I was in college. Now, I went to church, I believed in God, I believed in Jesus, I got baptized, I did the whole deal, but I didn't really grapple with the question, who is Jesus, for a very long time in my life. I became a believer when I was eight years old, I got baptized when I was eight years old, Um, and then really for the next 11 years of my life, I didn't put much thought into who Jesus was. It wasn't until I got to Chico State and I had a little bit of a crisis of faith. Uh, because, see, for me, I went to Chico State, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to turn this place into a Christian school. But, but uh, it's, it's apparently a lot harder to convince 16,000 people that they're wrong than you would think. Uh, so I actually left Chico State um, and didn't, didn't bring, I don't know if I brought anybody to faith, but didn't bring the whole school to faith. I do know that. Um, and, uh, but while I was there, I got in quite a few arguments with people. See, when I was younger, uh, conversation without escalation wasn't really my strong suit. Um, really, I dug my heels in and said, no, you're wrong, and would refuse to give an inch, would refuse to even listen, which made it much more difficult for me to make any inroads in anybody's life. Um, so anyway, so I got in a couple different arguments and they kept coming back to the question of why, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And I couldn't give a good answer. I couldn't give a good answer because I hadn't explored the depths of my faith specifically to the reasoning behind why I would believe such a thing. And everything that we believe as Christians, everything that you believe as Christians hinges on who you think Jesus is. Who is he? 
See, if you have one point of view regarding Jesus, maybe he's a good man, he's a good person, whatever, that is going to dictate a completely different lifestyle versus if you think Jesus is Lord and Savior. Completely different lifestyle. So the question really is one that's going to be, that we're going to wrestle with today, which is, who is Jesus? Dr. James Boyce, uh, he's a theologian, pastor, tells, uh, tells when the staff of his radio program went out onto the streets of Philadelphia to ask people this very question, who you think Jesus was? They had some interesting answers. Here's a couple of them. One, one woman responded, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God, which, technically true, but was God. Uh, another young woman, she was a biology student. Uh, this is my favorite answer. Uh, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. Okay? As another answer, a man answered, uh, I think that's something you have to decide for yourself, but he had some beautiful ideas. Others replied, he's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago who was interested in the betterment of all classes of people. He was well-liked, he meant well, he was a good man, but most people were just confused. They answered, I don't have any idea. I don't know. Now that's a big city. That's probably a more liberal city than where we find ourselves, but it really is sad that in a country like ours where anybody can easily answer or anybody can easily access information about Jesus or anybody can easily find out who he is, that there could be so many people who simply don't know who he is. And if a person does not have a basic knowledge of who Jesus is, then there's no way that we can actually trust him as Lord and Savior. There's no way that we can do it. You know, correct knowledge of who Jesus is has to underlie saving faith in him. Everything that we believe about him has to, has to dictate who we are. And so as John tries incredibly hard to make clear in this gospel, that the crucial question for every person to answer correctly is who is Jesus? That's what we have to answer. We need to get that question right. And this isn't just a question for people who, uh, who haven't been around faith. Maybe you're, it's the first time you've been in church in years or whatever, and you're like, good, I need to tackle this question. This isn't just for those people in the room. This is also for people in the room who have been a part of a faith community, a church, for a long time. People who maybe you've grown up your entire life coming to church, and you know who Jesus is. We're going to point to a couple things with that, but everybody needs to grapple with that question of who is Jesus Christ? You know, Paul even continues to grapple with that question. 25 years after the apostle Paul uh, had been converted to Christianity, he says that I may know him better that I may know him better. Unfortunately, many people have a, have a poor view regarding who Jesus is. We have a bad view of it. We don't understand it. Who is this guy? So we're gonna look at John 7, 1 through 13. We're gonna read the whole thing and then we're gonna chop it up into pieces and come back to it, okay? So it says this, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea. So your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. 
for even his own brothers did not believe him. Verse six, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that, it wor- that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said, said this, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. There's a lot going on here in a short 13 verses, as is the case with the book of John. I want you to know ahead of time, we are not going to be spending any more time in chapter 7 other than this week. There's a whole lot more in chapter 7. Please go back and read through it. It's 100% worth your time. But for these first 13 verses, there's a whole lot going on that we got to get to. Okay? There were three, three great Jewish feasts, uh, feasts in Jerusalem that every male was expected to be at. Okay? So I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. The first one was Passover. Passover was in the spring. Second one was Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. And the last one, the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths in the fall. See, Passover, really, uh, it it pictures uh, the Lord's death for our sins as our Passover lamb. Okay, if you're familiar with the Passover story back in the Old Testament, that's what this is celebrating. It's celebrating the act of of the, the angel of death passing over the people's houses who have painted lamb's blood on their doors, right? The Jewish people. So that's, that's Passover, okay? Uh, Pentecost, it actually, Pentecost was a thing before Pentecost actually happened in Acts chapter two. So for some of you, you're like, wait, Pentecost happened after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. No, the, the, the Holy Spirit came on to people during Pentecost. Pentecost wasn't instituted because of the Holy Spirit. That's why we celebrate it now. But that's not why it happened. Pentecost, actually, it foreshadowed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 2. And the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, really pictures Christ coming again to gather up all of his harvested people uh, and for, for them to be able to dwell with Jesus forever. And so Jesus and his disciples and his brothers are going up to this last celebration. This feast, this feast had, had two purposes. The first one was to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived and wandered in, in the wilderness in booths, okay? That's why it's called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, and to rejoice before the Lord of the harvest, particularly grape harvest, olive harvest, fruit harvest. Um, it also involved looking forward to a new exodus, a time when Jesus was going to come back and take all of his people with him and live in community forever. Uh, it was, it, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous of all of the feasts. It was a happy time. It was looking forward to what God was going to do through his son, right? That's what that, it was super exciting. Yeah, it, it included pouring out water as a remembrance of water from a rock that sustained Israel as they were wandering in the desert. Uh, there was a candle lighting ceremony uh, that commemorated God's presence with Israel through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. There's all this stuff that went on with the Feast of Tabernacles. But what we have to understand in the midst of all this is these verses ultimately point to the idea that believing in Jesus for salvation depends on having the right view about who he is. 
And many people don't have that point of view. The first group of people that we see here is, is Jesus's brother. Yeah, Jesus' brother had a very short-sighted view of Jesus. He had a short-sighted view of him. And the reference to, to his brothers here refers to, to, to Mary and Joseph's other sons. If you're from the Catholic faith, and I know there's a good chunk of you who come from the Catholic faith, you would say that Mary remained a virgin forever. Okay? In the, the Protestant tradition, the Protestant religion, we don't believe that. Okay? We believe Mary was a virgin when she birthed Jesus, but after that, her and Joseph had their own kids. Okay, so when it talks about Jesus' brothers, these are the people that they're talking about. Um, they, they, at this point, Jesus' brothers are, are unbelieving. And we know that at least two of his brothers at some point, James and Jude, come to a saving faith in Jesus. They come to recognize who he is, especially when they write the books of James and Jude. But James, James later became a leader in the church, and Jude uh, humbly identifies himself at one point in, in, in his book as a bond servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we know that James and Jude are Jesus' brothers. We know that at the very least those two came, uh, came to faith. But in verses 3 and 4, Jesus' brothers offer him some, some unsolicited career advice, right? Does anybody have that brother or sister who's like, hey, you should do this? And you're like, I'm not going to listen to anything you got to say. I don't know if Jesus thought that for sure, but Jesus definitely once they said, hey, you need to go to this feast. You need to go celebrate this feast. You need to go into the public and celebrate this feast. Jesus was like, you know what? You guys can go at any point that you want. But for me, it's not yet my time, okay? God is going to dictate to me what that time is for me to go and celebrate uh, this feast. And we can't say for sure what, what their motives are, you know, some say that uh, the brothers who were, like it says, unbelieving at this point were being incredibly sarcastic at the time, right? You want to be famous, Jesus? Hey, why don't you go to the Feast of Tabernacles? Go do some of your miracles up there. Go say, go say, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood there. See how that goes, bro, right? Some people think, they, they legitimately think that is, that is kind of what they were, they were saying. Uh, there are other people um, who thinks that they were offering actually sincere advice, but, but worldly advice. At that saying, if you want your messianic claims to be known, if you want people to know that you are the Messiah, if you want people to know that, you need to, you need to get out of these little towns that you've been preaching in. You need to go to, to, to where everybody is. All the Jewish males in your family or, or, or in the entire world are gonna be here. Go. Go, make your claims, because if you are going to be the political Messiah that we hope you will be, that's the place you need to go to, bro. So regardless of where you fall onto this spectrum, we recognize that the brothers had a poor, short-sighted point of view regarding who Jesus was. Okay, they don't understand exactly who, who, who he was. My understanding is that the, the brothers probably thought of Jesus in line with the multitude that we see that he should be this idea of a, a political Messiah, like I said before, who could deliver Israel from Rome, right? If Jesus' miracles meant that he was promised political savior, then he needed to establish his claim in Jerusalem with the Jewish authorities there, as well as the mass, masses of people there. But the Brothers of Jesus was, was kind of similar, actually, to satanic advice that had been given back when Jesus was tempted in the desert. Because Satan tells him, hey, hey, jump off this pinnacle, 
Jump off the pinnacle of the temple and let the angels carry you safely to the ground so that everyone who saw it will be astonished and bow before you as the Son of God. Go do that. You want fame, you want notoriety, you want to be the savior of the world real quick, you want to get, gain some traction real quick, go show everybody what it is that you can do. It's the same sort of advice that is being given here. Go up to Jerusalem, do a few more spectacular miracles and everybody will follow you. Everyone will follow you. It's a, it's a worldly kind of wise publicity and marketing strategy but was ultimately not the will of God for Jesus to do that. That's why Jesus tells his brother, hey, you guys can go at any time, but my time has not yet come. You guys go, my time has not yet come. I'll talk about 7-7 in a second where it mentions the world's hatred of Jesus, but then he tells his brothers, you go up to the feast yourselves. You guys go up there. So he stayed in Galilee, Jesus stayed in Galilee, but after his brothers left for the feast, Jesus went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Okay, I wanna press pause on this real quick because if you read this incorrectly, you're going to assume that Jesus just lied to his brothers, right? And Jesus is like, hey, you guys go. I'm not, my time's not yet time for me to go. And then as soon as his brothers leave, he like slips out the back door and goes <laughs> secretly up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, it's not what's going on. Jesus is waiting for God to tell him it is time for you to go. He says that my time has not yet come. You guys can go whenever you want, but my time has not yet come. Okay, so Jesus is not lying to his brothers here. He is waiting for God to give him the go ahead in order to go. One of the things that I want to pull from this, these are Jesus's brothers. Raise your hand if you have a, a sibling in the room, siblings in the room. Okay, yeah, most of you, good. I have a sibling, in the, in, not in the room, but I have a sibling. We grew up literally feet from each other, okay? I was top bunk, he was bottom bunk. Um, I don't know how I got the top bunk, but I got top bunk. I'm the little brother, so <laughs> go figure. I got the top bunk though. But then he got the new room a couple years later. So he got the, like the new cool room, but my room was still bigger than his. I don't know how I got top bunk and biggest room, but it just happened. Anyway, but I grew up with a brother. Okay, and me and my brother, I mean, we shared friends. We grew up in the same house. We grew up with the same parents. We went to the same schools. We played a lot of the same sports. We did all that. We were part of the same clubs. We did all of the same things uh, with each other. My brother and I aren't super close anymore. And that's okay. I want you to know that's okay. But I want to, I, the same understanding here that I could pull from my life and, and look at the text and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, don't confuse the idea of proximity, of being close to somebody, with the idea of having a relationship with somebody. Because I think ultimately that's kind of what happened with my brother and I, is we grew up right next to each other. We would have called each other friends. I fell off a swing set when I was like two years old, got a nasty gash right here, it was at Sugar Pine. I think they took that swing set out at Sugar Pine because of me. Got a nasty gash and, and I had to go to the hospital. I got stitched up, all the things. But as I'm like being carried to a car, my brother's three years old, a year older than me. I just kept yelling, I want my brother. I want my brother. I know, it was really cute. I was there. I don't remember any of it. This is like third hand from my mom, but I'm sure it happened. Okay, so even, even in the sense that my brother and I were friends, we were close that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a sound relationship there, a solid relationship there. It's the same thing we recognize with Jesus' brothers. We cannot confuse the idea of proximity with the idea of relationship. 
We cannot confuse those two things. So, that is true of our next group as well. The idea that Jewish leaders actually have a hostile view of Jesus. Jesus' brothers have a short side of view of him, but Jewish leaders have a hostile view of who Jesus is. They, they were seeking Jesus, but not so they could learn from him, not so they could believe in him, but so they could kill him. That's ultimately what they wanted to do with Jesus. Jesus threatened their power, which they used to control the people through fear. And you see that down in verse 13. He didn't fit their idea of a political Messiah, mostly because I think he wasn't going up and doing the political stunts that everybody wanted him to do. He wasn't playing their political game and rewarding all of them with these nice positions in heaven. He actually does the opposite. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Yeah, he consistently insults them. He says, you guys are, you guys are a den of vipers. Yeah, he, he, he consistently goes back to those things. And so when he upset the money changers, when he upset the temples, way back when we talked about this, like in September, yeah, when he did that, he essentially immediately made enemies with the, with the elite religious leaders of the time. Immediately. And ever since then, they've been trying to figure out a way how to get rid of Jesus. And so they have an incredibly hostile view of who this guy is. I think their emotions got in the way of understanding who Jesus actually was. I think there's very true today. There's actually a lot of people who don't believe in Christ because they react emotionally rather than rationally. I would say that's actually true on both sides of the spectrum. I would say there's actually a lot of people who come to church who come to a saving faith in Jesus because, or come to a faith in Jesus because of emotions. I'm gonna say yes immediately, right? The camp high, I don't know how many of you grew up going to camp, but man, I rededicated my life to Jesus at least two times a year, summer camp and winter camp. Man, after that, I was on fire for Jesus. And granted, it was like summer camp was always Tuesday night, right? I'm sleep deprived. I'm exhausted. I stayed up till 3 a.m. living on like sour gummy worms and Reese's Pieces. And I'm just like, and we get there and the worship's phenomenal and the lights are low. And, and man, I just, every single time I was like, oh, I'm coming to Jesus. Oh, Jesus is here in this moment. In reality, it's my emotions waking up, right? And I'm just like, I, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I'm not saying God can't work through that. Because I think that, that that is true. But I think the opposite is true as well. I think in society today, there's an automatic knee-jerk reaction to the minute that somebody mentions the name of Jesus. And they're not willing to listen to, they're not willing to listen to, to any sort of uh, uh, rational statements or anything like that. Emotionally speaking, they think the church has hurt the world. The church is not a positive thing. I don't like Jesus because of it. There's a visceral emotional reaction that happens immediately when the name of Jesus gets brought up. And it's an emotional thing. It's the same thing that is happening here with the political leaders of the time. They sensed that, that to come to Jesus would mean it was kind of the end of their plans. That they couldn't do what they wanted to do. It was the end of their prestige. It was the end of the control over their lives. They liked the comfortable lives that they've been living. And they don't want to face the truth that they are in need of a truly perfect God. They don't want to face that truth. This is another camp that all of us fall into. Because of our, our affluence in America, our affluence in the West, 
we really can do church without the power of God. 100% we can do church without the power of God. I've been to churches like this where, man, their, their methods were completely on point. They're killing it. Their greeter team was the best greeter team in the world. Their on-ramping process was the best on-ramping process in the world. Everything that they had was perfect. They were doing it the way that they should absolutely do it. And then as soon as you peel back that curtain, you recognize the power of Christ is not there. That it's a whole lot of people doing things that they are skilled at, that they are gifted at, but leaving God out of the equation. They're leaving God at why? Because they want to do the things that they're comfortable with doing. They want to do the things that, they're, that, that, that fall into their strengths and play into their strengths and say, I can make that, we, we can build this. It's something that I personally have to continue to guard myself against. I think any pastor has to continue to guard themselves against trying to make church about them. Why? I get an opportunity to stand up here every single week and preach for as long as I want about whatever I want to say. And most of you would come back next week. Most of you. Some of you would say, that guy preaches too long, I'm going to lunch. But I get the opportunity to do that. It would be so easy for pastors to just make church about themselves, about, about the ability to make church about my charisma, about the ability to make church about my likability, my accessibility, my ability to communicate well, whatever it is. It is so easy to fall into that. That's ultimately an incredibly short-sighted view of church and the reason and how we're supposed to do church. The church isn't about the pastor. The church is about the body. There's way more written about the body of Christ, the church of Christ, than there is about being an elder in a church. Way more. And so the reliance isn't on me. The reliance is actually on you. But that means that we have to continue to guard ourselves against trying to build something on my back or Kyle's back or Jeff's back or whoever's back that it would be. It's not about us. It's about the power of God in us and recognizing that we have to continue to die to self with that. The last group of people who have a poor view of Jesus are the multitudes and they didn't know what to think of Jesus. The multitudes didn't know what to think of that guy. John 12 and 13 actually talks about it. It says, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, right? Because if they wanted to kill Jesus, obviously they're gonna go after anybody who thinks Jesus is the Messiah as well. They were afraid to speak openly, kind of big brother, 1985-esque, if you will. So the multitudes were divided into two camps. Both of those camps were incredibly strong camps and both of them were wrong camps as well. Some said he's a good man, which is true, but that's as far as it went. Jesus is a good man. John Stott points out, uh, he's a theologian, that if Jesus was not God in human flesh, his claims would have meant that he is not a good man, but a very self-centered man, an incredibly a uh, selfish man. He was talking about, he was always talking about himself. Telling people they should believe in him as the only way to have eternal life. He claimed that the Old Testament was written about him. Can you believe if this guy wasn't God? Like if he wasn't God and he said those things, you're calling that a good man? 
I don't know, I want to hang out with a dude who's consistently saying that everything in Scripture up to that point points to him. Like, no, no, no. Guys, you read all that? They wrote that about me. And that not be true? You can't call a person like that a good man. It's not the case. He's a lying, selfish person if it's not true. I mean, he claimed to be the bread of life. He claimed he could satisfy the hunger of all the people who came to him. He claimed that whoever believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing from his innermost being. That's in verse 38. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that before Abraham was born, he existed. Before the father of the Jewish faith was born, Jesus existed. That he existed. He claimed that to those people. No good man who was not God in human flesh could say such things without be considered, being considered a deluded megalomaniac. He would have been crazy. There's no point to believe that. The other camp, though, thought that, that Jesus was leading the people astray. Okay, this camp, they were the traditionalists who thought that the ways of the fathers were good enough. But if Jesus was a deceiver, he was a very good one. That guy, he, he got my attention. He got a whole lot of fiercely monotheistic Jews to believe his claims to be God to the extent that many of them would eventually suffer and die because of belief in him. So both camps were in error. Both camps would result in people still being under God's righteous judgment because neither camp believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Neither can't believe that, but why did these Jewish people who had all the scriptures, who heard Jesus' claims, and who saw his miracles not believe? We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Here's the answer. People have a poor view of Jesus because we got two reasons here. The first reason is they were afraid he will confront their sin. They're afraid Jesus is going to confront their sin. I think this is incredibly true and pervasive today as well. People stop short of full belief in Christ because they're afraid of, of him confronting actual real sin in your life. Because if we take Jesus at his word, we have to change. We have to change. John uh, tells us in verse seven, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus tell them, hey, look, the world hates me because I'm speaking out against the world. I'm speaking out against sin. I'm speaking out against the things that you guys are all incredibly comfortable with. And so because of that, it's going to hate me. Because why? I'm going to confront sin. That's why. I'm going to talk about the things that you guys aren't willing to talk about, the things that you're totally okay sweeping to the side as long as you look good on the outside. As long as you look like a good little Jewish leader on the outside, let's contextualize it. As long as you good look like a good little Christian on Sunday morning. As long as that is true, I'm okay following Jesus. As long as I don't have to confront sin in my life, I'm okay following Jesus. I mean, he tells his brothers this. That the world is going to hate me because the world's deeds are evil. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, long time ago, it talks about the idea that for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We don't want to go to the light. That's why following Jesus is so hard. 
Following Jesus is a whole lot more than a prayer at the end of my message. It's the ability to say, hey, look, I have come up short. I know I come up short on a regular basis. God, that gap between, between me and you, that sin gap between the two of us, can you come into that space and allow me to get to the Father? Recognizing that my sin needs to be exposed to the light. That's what makes it hard. That's what makes it hard. So that's the first, the first reason that people have a poor view of Jesus. The second reason is they're afraid of the repercussions in believing in him. They're afraid of what it actually means to believe in Jesus. Verse 13 says, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. No one wants to talk about Jesus and what they believe about Jesus because they're afraid of what's gonna happen to them. They're afraid of the repercussions. Fast forwarding a little bit in John 9, 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue, banished. You are no longer Jewish, you're in exile. They feared him, they feared the leaders, they feared those re repercussions. So implicit in Jesus' words is it true that if you follow him, the world will hate you because of your holy life. It's doubling down. The world will hate you because of your holy life. You won't be the most popular person at the office or at school if you don't join the world in its sinful ways. That's a hard thing to do. You know, teaching junior high, being a, a youth pastor for junior high and high school students, that was the main thing that I had to push at. The main thing that I had to push at. The idea that the pressure on the outside world is going to be great. So what are you doing to have an equal, if not more, amount of pressure coming from the inside? How are you internalizing God's word? How are you living for Jesus in such a way that it allows you to not give in to the ways of the world. And that's a hard thing. James 4.4 4 says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You have to choose sides. We have to choose sides. And if you are a person who is sitting with a foot in two separate cars, eventually you're gonna fall out of those cars. You gotta pick one. You gotta pick one. And unfortunately, in Christianity as we see it today, there's a whole lot of people with a foot in both cars. And pretty soon, you're gonna fall out of them. And it's not gonna feel good. The only correct view of Jesus is that he is both Savior and Lord. It's the only correct view of Jesus. And if you're up here, if you're out here thinking, how do you know that's the only correct view of Jesus? Because that's what I believe, and this is church. The only correct view of Jesus is that he is both Lord and Savior. We see this by the fact that Jesus didn't do his own thing, actually. Remember when it said that his time had not yet come? He lived in obedience to the Father's plan. He lived in obedience to the Father's plan. If Jesus had chosen to do so, he could have been the popular political Messiah that people wanted. He could have been the cool guy. He could have immediately gone over there, done some miracles, and gotten more popularity and more fame than anyone in the history of the world. He could have done that. 
But he intentionally said, no, it's not yet my time. He does this numerous times in the book of John. It's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. Jesus was operating on God's timetable, which ultimately leads to the cross. That's where he tells his brothers in verse 6, my time is not yet here. He was probably referring to the time to go up to the feast as well to the manner in which he would go there, not openly, but in first a quiet, undramatic way. He knew that he had come to die for our sins, but at the proper time. Not in response to his brother's worldly advice, he came to lay down his life for his sheep in obedience to the Father's will. Not his will, the Father's. You know, Jesus testified to the world that its deeds are evil. And many of God's prophets down through the centuries had done the same thing, but those prophets always identified themselves with the sins that they preached against. Their message was always, we have sinned against the Lord. This is how you can tell that Jesus isn't merely a prophet. Jesus comes as the light shining in the darkness. He could ask, which of you convicts me of sin? And Peter talks about in verse six, chapter 6, verse 69, Jesus is the Holy One of God. And Jesus could, could call on people to follow him with the promise that he could give them eternal life and not be lying to them. As the officers were sent to arrest Jesus, they came back without him. They testified in verse 46, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh. And to be saved, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, Christ, the promised Savior, and that he's the eternal Son of God. That's the only true understanding of who Jesus is. But much like Jesus' brothers, we need to recognize that just because you know who Jesus is doesn't mean you know who Jesus is. Just because you know who Jesus is doesn't mean you know who Jesus is. That's not a typo. You know, you're saying the same thing twice. That's not a typo. If you grew up in church, you've been familiar with Christian teaching your entire life. But don't be tricked, don't be fooled into thinking that your familiarity with Christ equals your salvation. That's not true. I don't care if you've been sitting in these chairs, pews 20 years ago, whatever. I don't care how long you've been sitting here. Don't be fooled that because you know who Jesus is that you actually know who Jesus is. Don't be fooled by that. You know, I have a lot of conversations with other pastors, a lot of conversations with other pastors. And the majority of them think that actually the majority of their congregations aren't actually saved. A lot of them think that. A lot of them think that. Because we exercise this idea of Christianity that looks more like familiarity than it does relationship. Oh, I know who that guy is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hang out with him every Sunday. Jesus lives at church. That's why you're not allowed to cuss here. Did you know that? <laughs> if you believed in Christ, you have to let Jesus confront your sin so that you forsake those things and walk in light. You know, all of us have come, need to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. And I'll finish with this. You have to come to some sort of conclusion. 
You're allowed to be confused. You're allowed to dig deeper. But I would encourage you to continue to do so. Continue to ask those questions until you can get to the answer that you need. But you have to come to a conclusion about who he is. Not just what you believe about him, but who he actually is. And if we're lacking in this respect, then then we're going to be urged, if we're not lacking in this respect, rather, you're going to be urged to live according to his word. You're going to be urged to do the things that he wants us to do. You're going to be urged to share his word. You're going to be urged to care deeper about relationship with him. Because if we come to the conclusion that he is Lord and Savior of our lives, our conversations look different. Our care for others look different. This is why we offer so many opportunities that we offer for you, for your faith to be encouraged in some way. That's why we're doing the equipping classes. Jeff talked about the equipping classes. We know that there's people in here who are incredibly intimidated to talk about Jesus in the Bible in any way, shape, or form for fear that they're going to look stupid. I've lived it. I continue to live it. I get freaked out anytime someone walks up to me and says, hey, I have a theological question for you. And I say, oh, that's great. You know, why don't you go ask Jeff? (laughs) It's great. But I get free. Yeah, let me know what he says. But I still get, but, but that's why we do things like this, to encourage your faith, to grow your faith. We want you to go to those classes. Man, sign up for Christian Basics if you're just like, you know what? If you are brand new to faith, this is a perfect opportunity for you. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, it's a great opportunity for you. Go figure out what it is exactly that the Bible is saying. Sign up for it. Go on the app. Go on the website. Sign up for it. I give you permission to do it right now. You can ignore me for the next five minutes. But that's why we do things like that. That's why we offer things like small groups so we can try to understand who Jesus is. We can wrestle with his identity who he is, and how that should look in our lives, how that allows our sin to be able to come to light then in those spaces. Say, hey, look, I've been, I've been really struggling with this for a really long time. To allow God to intercede. That's why we do things like service. Church doesn't happen. It doesn't just magically happen on Sunday morning. It probably legitimately takes 50 to 100 volunteers every single weekend to make church happen. If I don't show up, yeah, you won't have a sermon, but everything else will do great. Everything else will continue to work. Why? Because you're the body of Christ. And it's your responsibility to serve in some way. And if you come to a conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, you have to say, hey, I'm going I'm to try to figure out who he is on a deeper level. I'm going to go to this equipping class or I'm going to jump into small groups, or I need to serve in some way to show my obedience to God that he is both, both Lord and Savior of my life, or I'm going to go, I'm going to go on one of our short-term mission trips and, and hopes that maybe Jesus lights a fire under my heart to be able to go. I, I don't know. God, you tell me what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm supposed to go be a long-term missionary. I'll finish with this last story. It's a guy by the name of Bill. Uh, and Bill and I met when I was working at HDC, and um, he was kind of at one of the other other campuses, and um, I was in charge of taking all of our students on a mission trip down to Mexico, and so 
we took a group of students the first year, wasn't super well attended, um, but Bill and I were two of the leaders on the trip, and so of course Bill and I hung out a lot. And Bill was in his 50s, retired, fireman, trying to figure out what he was supposed to do with the rest of his life, didn't know. So he went on the mission trip with me, really enjoyed it, started hearing about who God is, started hearing about uh, God's heart for the nations. It's a good trip. So he was my first call the next year, right? Hey, Bill, time for missions. You in again, man? He's like, yeah, I wouldn't miss it, wouldn't miss it. So he came again. And I remember Bill and I were sitting on this little makeshift bench outside a chapel in Mexico. And he looked at me and he said, I think I need to go into full-time missions. I was like, Bill, I know we're in Mexico right now, and this seems glamorous, and this seems great. It's like, Bill, you got a daughter who's a junior in high school. You got a son who's in eighth grade in junior high. Now probably isn't the best time for you to go into full-time missions, bro. He was like, no, God's been working in my life. He said, I, I think I need to go. I was like, hey, however I can help you, like, I'm not going to get in the way of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Like, however I can help and support you, you let me know. So Bill and I started meeting every couple weeks or so, uh, and he was telling me about his plans, and then all of a sudden, he, and, you know, for me, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, sure, Bill, you're going to go on a mission. You're going to get home. It's going to cool off, and the next year at the mission trip, you're going to say the same thing, just like camp. And so all of a sudden, we sit down for lunch one time. He said, hey, I sold my house. Uh, what? He was like, yeah, I sold my house. Uh, he said, my wife put in uh, her two weeks notice at work. Um, and at the end of this month, we're going to Fiji. So we're going to go serve in Fiji. I was like, oh, congrats on going to Fiji, bro. Real hard country you chose. But still, <laughs> but still, he's obedient. And because of the fact that he recognized who God was, he recognized who Jesus is and said, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. You are Savior of the world. And so because of the fact that you're the Savior of the world, my life needs to look differently because of that. And he just started listening and listening and listening. And he got convicted to what Jesus was doing in his life. And he said, all right, if you're Lord and Savior, I'm going to sacrifice my financial security. My kids are going to get a much different opportunity to grow up, to finish growing up than other kids get. But Jesus, you're worth it because you're Lord and Savior of my life. So I'm going to say yes. All because he recognized who Jesus was. We all need to come to the conclusion of who Jesus is. And if you do come to that conclusion that he is indeed Lord and Savior of your life, your life should look differently because of it. Not just that you pray before dinner, but it should look radically different because of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for John, the book of John, and how dense it is and how wonderful it is and how, man, you, thank you for John. And God, thank you for even him pointing out these different groups of people who didn't have a solid understanding of who your son is. 
And God, as we read through that text, I'm sure each of us could kind of fall into some different categories there, not quite knowing who or having a poor perception of him, or even some of us being hostile towards the name of Jesus. I don't know where it is that we fall, God, but we recognize that those who say that Jesus is Lord and Savior of our life, we should look differently than the rest of the world. We should behave differently. That we should recognize there are people in our life who don't yet know you. And if we say, yes, you're Lord and Savior, and then refuse to share about you, refuse to talk about your name, then we are not operating in lockstep with you, Father. I pray we would be in lockstep with your spirit. Show us people who need to know you. And Lord, make us bold enough to simply be obedient to, who, to what you say we're supposed to do, which is share your name. Gotta pray for those in here who don't yet know who you are, who are still trying to figure that out and wrestle with that. Who is Jesus exactly? Was he a, just a nice guy? Is he actually Lord and Savior? Gotta pray that conclusions would be made. And Father, I pray for those in here who maybe are just like, you know what, this is it. He is Savior. This is what I needed to hear today to be able to come into faith, that I recognize that my life apart from Jesus, being Savior and Lord, is ultimately empty, it's hollow, I'm left grasping at straws. Father, if that's somebody in here today, just pray along with me. The ABCs, we do it in every service with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. Just pray and say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I mess up all the time. I constantly fall short. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me and ultimately conquer death so I could be with you forever. So Jesus could step into that gap, that sin gap, to live for you forever and see that we would choose to follow you every single day. That we would choose to recognize that God your son is indeed Lord and Savior of my life. He is indeed Lord and Savior of the world. And so because of that, I will act differently. I pray that's on our, on our hearts this week, Father. I pray that's on our, your son's name would be on our tongues this week, Father. That we would simply act differently because of your son and who he is. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.